Thank you, Steve, and the worship team for leading us in worship as always. You know, God is doing a new work here at Covenant. We are looking outward more and more and more. And uh, it's pretty exciting to see the different ministries and the different people that God is raising up here at Covenant to help us reach into our community with His love and with the truth of the gospel. And Robin Bales is just one of many people uh, helping us do that. So we are grateful for her and thanks for sharing. Robin, wherever you are out there, thank you. Well, hey, good morning. Carlin is gone this morning. He's actually in Ogallala, Nebraska. How many of you have heard of it? I've actually been there, okay? I almost missed it, but it was there. Uh, no, that's actually a little bit bigger than that. But his, uh, his brother, Kurt, is celebrating his 25th year at that church in ministry. And so Carlin is there to help him celebrate. And if I'm not mistaken, I think his brother, brother Chuck, uh, had the same kind of celebration a couple of years ago. And then we celebrated Carlin's 25 years here. Uh, those Cheddar boys have got it going on. They really do. So anyway, that's where Carlin is. So I'm here with you. And that means we need to pray. Okay? So let's pray. All right? Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the time of worship to lift up our hearts and our minds and our voices to you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in the Word together. Lord, this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart, and I believe it is near and dear to yours. So, Father, give me clarity and fill me with your Spirit. And, Father, we invite your Spirit. We don't have to, but we do. We invite your Spirit to come move and speak to each one of us. You are... He is the one who guides us into all truth. And so we ask him to do that, Father, in both our minds and our hearts, Father. So do the things that only you can do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, if you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably figured out there's some things that are supposed to be part of your Christian experience. You're supposed to be growing spiritually. By that, I mean you're supposed to be seeing God beginning to do a work inside of you that's changing you, a work that ultimately leads to your outside and how you act and how you behave and how you treat other people and how you move through your world. You've probably figured out by now that you're also supposed to be developing a personal walk with God where you find time to be with Him and to read His Word and to share your heart with Him and ask Him for the things you need and, and beginning to experience the reality of His, of His presence in your life. Supposed to also be a part of a local gathering of believers, which is called the church, where, and where you're finding some significant relationships and finding a place where you can minister and serve in a meaningful way. Supposed to be involved in becoming a disciple, a fully devoted follower of Christ, who has decided to follow Jesus above all else and any other one person. You probably figured out that you're supposed to be a witness for Christ. You're supposed to be able to Share the gospel and be willing to share the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose again on the third day. He conquered sin and death. And because of that, your faith in him has allowed you to be forgiven, to experience a relationship with him now here and to have eternal life when you die. Those are all very important parts of the Christian life. Now, what you may not have figured out is how to do all that, okay? But if you hang around here at Covenant long enough, you'll find that we're pretty intent on providing opportunities for you to grow in all of these areas. It's, it's what we do, and we're always trying 
uh, to get better at it. So what we do is very important here. But what I want to talk about this morning is not doing. I don't want to know what you're doing this morning. What I want to know is how you're doing. And they are related. What we do and how we're doing are related, but they are not the same thing. They are not. You know, when it comes to, to growing spiritually, to walking with God, to, uh, to being a part of a church, to being a disciple, uh, to being a witness for Christ, I think that what I've found in my, my own personal experience, in my experience with other believers, is that there's basically four categories that believers fall into. I have fallen into all four of them for significant periods in my life. So when I talk about how you're doing, I want to give you these four categories. You'll see them in your outline there. And let's read them together. The first category is, I'm growing spiritually. I have my ups and downs, but overall I see God working in me and through me as I engage in the opportunities for growth and ministry that come my way. That's one experience of how you're doing as a believer. Another experience, category two, is I've tried to be and do all those things, but nothing ever seems to click for me. I have trouble connecting with God. I don't see a lot of change inside me and I don't see God doing much through me. That's another experience of how you're doing as a believer that we can go through. The third category is I've been engaged in all these things for a number of years, and it's been deeply fulfilling. But now it seems like the wheels are coming off, nothing's working, the pain of life is overwhelming, and I don't know what to do anymore. That's another category for how we're doing as believers. And the last one's category four. I've never really engaged in much of any of these things. The timing never seems to be right, and honestly, I'm just not that motivated. Now those categories, I think, are very legitimate. They are categories that maybe you, like me, have found yourself in at different times in your life, and I don't know, well, I do know many of you, but I don't know where all of you are this morning, what category you're in, or in other words, how you're doing. But if you find yourself in categories two, three, and four, you may find that generally the counsel you receive first focuses on what you're doing, what you're not doing, or what you need to do. And as important and helpful and needful as that conversation is, I think the first conversation is not what we're doing, but what we're believing. Specifically, what we're believing about God, what we're believing about the scriptures, and what we're believing about how he sees us. Those are the things that come first because it's what we believe that ultimately dictates what we do and what we become, all right? So our focus this morning is on believing and not doing. Now, there's a long list of, of things that we could talk about, but I'm gonna talk about one big one, and what we're talking about here is false beliefs. Whether you know it or not, you have false beliefs in your life, and so do I. That's part of the renewing of the mind as believers. God moves us from the things that aren't true to the things that are true in our minds, in our hearts, and in our experience. So we all have false beliefs that we're working to, but some are way more serious than others. And we're going to talk about what I think is one of the more serious ones in terms of how we're doing as believers. But first, let's, uh, let's see if we can give a simple definition for a false belief. Fundamentally, it is a thought or a conviction that is in direct conflict with who God is and what he says in the scriptures. Let me read that again. Fundamentally, a false belief is, some, is a thought or a conviction 
that is in direct conflict with who God is and what he says is true in scriptures. Now, sometimes these false beliefs are, are pretty obvious where foundational truths are being doubted and they're being cast aside. And that's not the kind of false beliefs I'm talking about this morning. For most Christians, not all, but for most Christians, false beliefs that we have in our hearts and our minds are way, way more subtle than that. They're either things that we either sincerely believe are true or things that we know they're not true in our minds, but in our hearts, we continue to respond as if they were true. Ever done that? We do it all the time, we do. So that's what a false belief is, that's the effect it has on us, and one of the more subtle and devastating false beliefs has to do with how we see God the Father, specifically seeing Him as something that He is not. Now, why is that so important? Well, you can imagine, but first of all, when Jesus, when his disciples said, teach us to pray, he pointed them to the Father. And he said, our Father who is in heaven, and we have the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus was on the earth, he modeled his prayer life toward the Father. The emphasis throughout the New Testament, you can pray to the Father, you can pray to the Son, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. I prayed all of them, Okay. But the clear emphasis is on the Father because the Apostle John said, see how great a love the Father has shown us that we should be called children of God. Children cry out to their Father, okay? So how we see God as Father has everything to do with how we relate to Him, how we walk with Him, how we experience Him, and how we do, if you will, in the Christian life. And what I've, in fact, I've always been taken by Hebrews eleven six. It says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Believe that he is, all that he is. And so often we can find ourselves not coming to the God who is, but the God who is not. Assigning qualities to God that are not there and therefore finding it very difficult to come to him, let alone expect a positive response, let alone expect a reward. And when we have thoughts about God that are false, typically they focus in on, on three areas. They focus in on character, attitude, and how we think he sees us. When I was a campus director with Campus Crusade, it was my third year on staff, I'd been mentored by Will Sanborn, who had founded the work at the University of Nebraska. That's how I've been in Ogallala. Uh, it was in Lincoln. And so he mentored me, and then he left to take over another campus and gave that campus to me. It was a large work, uh, a big work, and I felt a bit overwhelmed by it. And as we moved through the fall, the ministry was going very well, but I found myself slowly spiraling down inside. No one knew what was going on. Spiritually, just going down, down, down. Emotionally, mentally, just very much in a struggle. And that fall, a man named Jim Craddock, who many of you know, he founded a wonderful counseling ministry here for many, many years, and now Doris and his daughter Christy carried on with His Truth Transforms. But he had come to speak at our conference, a fall conference for the, for the kids and for the staff, and I had never heard anybody talk about God the way he did. It was remarkable. And so I remembered him. He'd given me his phone number. We'd had some personal conversations. And so I called him. And I said, Jim, I, I, 
I think I'm going to need to leave staff. I, I, am, I am not doing well. And Jim, being who he is, said, well, Ron, I got an idea. Thanksgiving's next week. Why don't you come down to Oklahoma City? Spend Thanksgiving with me and my family. And we'll talk. And so he counseled me over the weekend. And early on in the counseling, one of the things he did, he said, Ron, I want you to, tonight, he's staying at his house, he said, Ron, I want you to go to our home tonight, and I want you to sit down, and I want you to write out for me what you really think and how you really see and how you really feel about God the Father. He said, now don't you dare give me your theology. He said, I know you know all the right answers. You are well-trained, you're biblically sound, I'm not looking for the right answers. I'm looking for what is in your heart. Do not lie to me. <laughs> so, people lie about God. Did you know that? We lie about what we see about God. We do that. He knew that. And so I wrote down what I thought, really thought, about God. And I brought it back to him. And he read it. And he said one of the most, one of the most life-changing sentences I've ever heard in my entire life. He said, Ron... Who would draw near to a God like that? Right there. He hit it. He nailed it. Okay. The reason I was struggling is the God I knew in my mind was a completely different God in my heart and in my experience. And in my experience, the character I saw in God, I saw him as aloof, unknowable, unpredictable, unreliable, and ready to punish. That's the God I saw. In his attitude, I saw him as critical and hard to please. And how he sees, saw me, I, saw, I thought he saw me as a wretched sinner, a continual failure, a continual source of disappointment, someone worthy to be punished and condemned. Now that is a problem, okay? Now I don't know how you see God this morning, but that's how I saw God when I was 25 years old. And that set me on a journey of, of knowing who God the Father really is, not only in my theology and in my mind, as important as that is, but also in my heart. So my question this morning is the title of the sermon. How do you see God the Father? And I'm not asking about your theology. I'm asking about how you really relate to him and experience him. And so we're going to talk about that this morning because we have false beliefs about who God is. And, and those are the most devastating beliefs that we can ever have, because what we think about God, as A.W. Tozer once said, is the most important thing about us, okay? So, we're going to talk about that. So, where did I and where do we get wrong ideas about God? What are the sources? Do we just dream this stuff up? No, there are places that it comes from. This is a fallen world. There are many, many ways to misinterpret who God is. So, I've just laid out a few for you in your notes. The first possibility is our earthly fathers. Now, earthly fathers is a wide range of earthly fathers. There are great earthly fathers. There are good ones. There are mediocre ones. There are bad ones. There are even evil ones. And then there's absent ones, the ones that either never were there, or they were there and they left, or they're there, but they're really not there, not available to you as a child. Our first concept of father comes from our earthly father. Jesus alluded to that in a scripture that we'll look at here in a little bit. That's the first part. And so right there, there's an issue. That's a beginning point, but not designed to be an ending point. And oftentimes, depending on how we, our experience with father, 
That's our beginning and ending point with God. And even the best of fathers, even the very best is simply a pale shadow of the real thing, God the Father, right? So that's the first thing. That's the first possibility, depending on your experience. The other was the church, and this is really my experience. I had a good dad. He wasn't a perfect dad, but he was a good dad. Uh, but the church I, I grew up in was legal, churches, I say, I grew up in, were legalistic. And the picture I got of God was, fe- he, first of all, his primary motivators were fear and guilt. And he was a punitive God. And my essential nature was that of a sinner who cannot stop sinning and is worthy of punishment. All, I used to think, my term was, I'm afraid he's going to smash me like a bug. Okay, that's what I used to think. That's another, that's another way we get wrong views of God is the church. Sometimes it's through authority figures, whether it's authority figures in the church or maybe a Christian school or a Christian college, or maybe it's just authority figures in your life because if God is the ultimate authority and these are the people he allows to be in authority, maybe he's like them. And so people in authority can make serious, serious mistakes and have serious, serious character flaws and issues and sometimes we reflect those back on God. Another area where we get a wrong concept of God is misinterpretation of the scripture. I'm gonna give you two examples. One I'm just gonna glide over because it's a huge one and a huge problem, is one is how we see the Old Testament. Well, first of all, as Carlin was alluding to within the last few weeks, he said, you know, you need to read the Old Testament and not just act on what you've heard about it. And a lot of times what people have heard about the Old Testament is that God is just an angry, capricious God full of judgment uh, and condemnation. Now, admittedly, there are difficult things in the Old Testament. It would be dishonest not to say that. There are difficult passages to understand. But what we miss in the Old Testament is this incredible grace and mercy of God. And it comes across in two ways. One is the patience. When we see God's judgment coming... Have we paid attention to the context and the time frame? He not only, when he brought judgment to Israel or to pagan nations, we're not talking decades. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years, centuries, where God has worked with these people trying to get them to listen to his voice and repent. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. Most, most often they didn't. And finally, as th- that leads to the issue of sin, we misunderstand the ravages of sin. If you study anything about the ancient world, it is utterly ravaged by sin. And when you read the Old Testament, you see the perversion, the murder, the bloodshed, the crime, the, just, it's, the, the people are being eaten up by it. And finally, does not a righteous God at some point do something, almost out of mercy? Okay? So that's the context of the Old Testament. In a light reading, we just see him as... Is something he is not. He is a merciful God. Let me just share with you one, one verse out of Hosea 11:8. Uh, just when God is going to bring judgment to Israel, he says, "How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admei? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were two smaller evil cities next to Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled." That sounds like an angry, capricious God. His heart is breaking that he has to judge his people. All right? So, a lot of times we misunderstand. We think the God of the Old Testament is the God of the Father, the God of the New Testament. Well, that's Jesus, and they're completely different. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. That's what the scriptures tell us. So, God may not be who you think he is based on a misunderstanding, God the Father, a misunderstanding 
of the Old Testament. The New Testament, oftentimes, based on how we see the Father, we misinterpret verses in the Scripture, verses that were given to us for grace. Let me give you one of my favorite examples. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll obey me. I used to read that and go, yeah, the one thing I can't do is obey. I can't keep his commandments. I can't obey. I'm just the worst Christian. Now that's reading judgment into a grace verse based on how I saw God. You know what it really says? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, the only lasting motivation for obedience is falling in love. And Jesus goes on to say, if you do that, what you'll find is you'll find the love, you'll find the love I have for you and the love the Father has for you. The idea is that if we fall in love with God, the Father, we end up wanting to obey him. It's the only lasting motivation. Duty, fear, guilt, all that, that doesn't do it. The only powerful motivation strong enough for us to obey is falling in love with God. How do we fall in love with God? We increasingly see him as he is, the father that he is to us. And as we see him more and more as he is, we fall more and more in love with him, and then our hearts and minds are open to receiving the love that's always been there and always expressed toward us. See? So a lot of times we're just misinterpreting scripture based on how we see the father, okay? That's, that's the idea there. The last one is circumstance. This is a dark and fallen world. There are terrible things that happen here. There are terrible things that have happened uh, to people sitting right in this room. When Jesus came, he didn't say he was gonna take us out of it. Okay? He said, I'm going to deal with the problem. The problem is sin. And I am going to destroy sin. I'm going to destroy death. I'm going to place my spirit within you. I'm going to do a work of grace in you and through you in this world. And I'm coming back. But in the meantime, it's going to be difficult. And he said, but I will be with you. And the Father in the Old Testament always said, I will be with you. So the idea there is oftentimes when we see God as different than what he is, we come up with very dark cynical views of what God is doing or not doing in this world or what he's not doing or doing toward me or toward other people. And admittedly, this is an extremely difficult topic. It really is, one that I have struggled with many times over the years, but how we see God, the Father, dictates how we interpret the circumstances in our lives, okay? So those are just some of the ways that we come up with wrong views of God the Father. Now, if, to the extent that we have a wrong view of God the Father, what effect does that have on our spiritual lives? Well, if you wanna look at your notes, I've got a few ideas. The first one is we don't draw near. If God is not who he says he is, loving, gracious, approachable, trustworthy, reliable, caring, kind, just goes on and on. If he's not like that, then he's not safe and you don't draw near to people that aren't safe, do you? If you do, you've got a problem, okay? We don't do that because it's not safe. And so the first thing is, if God's not who he says he is, he's someone else other than that, then he's not safe and I'm gonna draw near, not draw near. And if I do draw near, guess what? I'm not gonna be honest with him. I'm not gonna tell him how I really feel. I'm gonna try to be spiritual. I'm gonna try to present my best face. I'm gonna to try to be what I think he wants me to be so that he might love me and respond to me and my requests and my needs, right? So we're not honest, even though God the Father in the Old Testament gave us a little bit over 80 Psalms of Lament, 
where men were coming to God in every conceivable condition, and they never got rejected. They never got anything but acceptance. 80, I think actually 82 of them, 82 examples that God gave us. Why? Because he knows how prone we are to see him as he is not. And so we do, if we don't see him that way, we're not honest with him when we do come to him. That's why Jim Craddock told me don't lie to me. Because I've been lying to God for 25 years, right? Well, 18, I've been a Christian 18 years at that point. The next thing we do when we don't see God well, we misinterpret his discipline. If we don't see him as he is, when he does discipline us, we interpret it as something different. We interpret it as punishment. I'll talk about this a little bit more, but the difference between discipline and punishment is like night and day. And so when, if we, when he does bring things to us to grow us up or allows things to come to us that are difficult and hard to understand, we immediately assume the worst about God when we don't see him as he is. Another area that, that affects us in our walk with God is we perform for approval. Uh, there's different ways of doing this, and they're all very spiritual, okay? Uh, the first one is uh, what I call the checklist, the good Christian, good disciple checklist. I, uh, I have my quiet time in the morning. I read my Bible. I might even memorize scripture. I, uh, I go to small groups. I give. I serve. I do all the right things. And you know what? Those are all the right things. They are good things. The question is, what's the motivation? Okay. Do I do these things so that I can get God to favor me and love me? Or I do these things because I am favored. I am loved. I love how Timothy Keller says we, we, we perform, we serve because we are loved and accepted. We don't perform and serve to get love and acceptance. And so suddenly that checklist of all the right things with the, becomes the wrong things because it's the wrong motivation. Another way we do it is, is confession and repentance. Is confession begging God for forgiveness? Or is it agreeing with God about the nature of the sin that the Spirit has revealed to you and also the nature of his, of his forgiveness that's freely offered already by the cross of Christ? Is repentance, is that changing the mind based on the godly grief of what God has revealed? Or is it just kind of doing penance, feeling bad enough, long enough, until you feel like you're worthy of being forgiven. You know what the problem with that is? By then, you're on to the next sin. So then you gotta feel bad enough, long enough again, and for me, it was just, I felt bad enough, long enough all the time. That's, that's how that works. But see, again, those are spiritual things that we turn into things that aren't spiritual. Maybe it's perfectionism, where you're trying so hard to be everything that God wants you to be, you're a good worker, you're a good friend, you're a good husband, a good wife, a good son, a good daughter, a good church member, a good disciple, a good, just goes on and on, okay? Because I've got to be what the Bible tells me to be because if I'm not, there's a problem with God. Now, all those things, wouldn't you be good in all those areas? That's good. By the way, do you know perfectionism is bondage and excellence is freedom? Do you know that? That's another sermon. Anyway, um, just a thought. Uh, so, so the idea, these are the ways that we are affected by how we see God. There's nothing more important than how we see God the Father in our relationship with God as Christians. Okay? So what is the truth about God the Father? Well, let me just share a few things with you. First of all, 
He is holy. And by holy, I mean he is absolute perfection. He is absolutely pure, absolutely righteous. He is not flawed or crooked in any way. And he is the perfect, complete expression of goodness. Some theologians think that God's goodness is the, is the, is the whole, all of his attributes put into one is his goodness. He is good and he is holy and he is right and he is pure and he is not twisted or flawed in any way. That's the first thing. That's who he is. He's also a good father who gives good gifts. Some of that you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll return to something here in a minute. But Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Jesus is teaching on prayer. And in, in, in the context of that, he stops and he says, he says, or what man, he says, or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And what he's saying is, you're sinful. I know that, because I'm Jesus. You're sinful. And yet you know what a good father looks like. You know what a good father acts like. How could you possibly believe that God would be inferior to you? And yet that's exactly what we do. He is a good father and he gives good gifts. In fact, John, excuse me, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, get this, in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He never changes, he's always good and he always gives good gifts. Another truth about God the Father, he is intimate and approachable, okay? This is designed to pierce directly toward a wrong image of a father. Romans 8.15 says, he has not given us a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. And Jesus calls a term that we don't even have a good word for, daddy's the best we can do, and it is not even close. The most tender, intimate, approachable term he could possibly give to the Father. And that's what he gave. He said, this is your Father, your Abba Father. He is always approachable and he's always ready to be intimate with you and hear everything about you because he loves you. Another one is he's generous and loving. Now I do want you to turn to Ephesians 3, excuse me, 1, 3 through 9. This is a, a passage that tells us what God has done in us and what he's made us into. Uh, talk about a new identity in Christ. This is one of the key passages explaining how our identity has been completely changed in Christ. But what I want you to see, and I'll emphasize it as I go, is the attitude of God as he's done this work in us. I used to think God, everything God did for me or in me was kind of a grudging work. I was like, well, all right. This is not a grudging passage. Let me read it for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely, not grudgingly, freely 
bestowed upon us in the beloved, in whom we have in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace. Do you know how rich he is? Okay, unlimited. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. He is a generous and loving God. His whole attitude is built that way toward you and toward me. And finally, he disciplines us for our good. We won't go to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, but it talks about how the fact that we're disciplined proves that we are sons. God has paid us a compliment that sometimes we don't want. He has a, he has a plan for us that is far beyond our wildest dreams. He did not save us so that we could be boys and girls. He saved us so that we could be godly men, personally and spiritually mature. He saved us so that we could be godly women, personally and spiritually mature. Do you know how hard that is? Think to your own children. Do you know how hard, remember how hard that is? Disciplining your children, trying to get them to become something beside a spoiled brat or worse, it's the most difficult job in the world. And yet when God disciplines us, if we don't see him as he is, we come to all kinds of bad conclusions, just like small children do. And God has said, no, I am going to form Christ in you. I am going to make you into something you never could have been apart from me. And I am going to set you free from everything that keeps you in bondage. And I will not stop because I love you. So he disciplines us for our good. And finally, Ephesians 2.10, he made you special, he made me special with a unique purpose. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship is poem. It's a word that the Greeks often use for work of art or masterpiece. One of a kind. Expression of a master's skill and, and, and heart and mind. He has made us to do special things here on this earth. He created us in our mother's womb, made us just like he wanted us to be, and then he saved us and gifted us just like he wanted us to be gifted so that we could do his work, the great God of the universe, so we could do his work in this world. This is who God is. This is who God the Father is. This is who we come to when we pray. You know, it's interesting, when I was in crusade my, in my junior year, I was trying to get it going spiritually. I, was so, I had so much... I was so bogged down, and there's this girl who's a new believer in Christ, and she was she had a lot to do with me getting going, mostly because she was cute, and I'd go to Campus Crusade meetings because, you know, I was such a spiritual guy. But, <laughs> but she was so excited about God, and so excited about God the Father. In fact, sometimes she was just annoying to me because I, you know, I wasn't that excited. And, and at one point we were we'd prayed together or something, or we were in a small group, and she says, "You never call God Father, do you?" I thought, no. She goes, why is that? I didn't know why it was. See, sometimes um, we don't know what we don't know. Let me explain that. If you kind of know you don't know something, then you're not clueless. You're kind of aware. The things that are the most damaging in how we see God are the things that we don't know that we don't know. Okay. Um, that's... That's how that works. Um, did I miss a page of my notes? Okay. 
All right, good, okay. I had a thought there that I may have. You know, I'm 65, okay? So give me, cut me some slack here, okay? All right, okay, so, so, so the idea of being, that was, that was God firing a little shot to me when I was a junior in college and just because I didn't know what I didn't know. At 25, God was breaking in. I, I'm just getting ahead of myself in this last page of notes here. So what do we do, okay? If, if as I'm even, as I'm speaking this morning or maybe some things you've already been aware of, what do we do when we realize, wow, I don't think I see God the way I'm, he is. What do I do here? Well, what we do is we, um, we need to change our false beliefs. And the way we do that is we renew our minds. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing we do is we ask God to open our eyes to understand what's true about him. In Ephesians 1, 19 to 20, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened as to your calling. And you know what calling is? It's everything. It's all the entire work of God's salvation in us from start to finish. That is represented in the word calling. And Paul is saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened to your calling. And it starts with seeing God as he is. David in Psalm 119, 18, he said, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. So the first thing we do is, God, open my eyes. Open my eyes when I read the word to see you as you are, not as you're not. And then ask God for wisdom in your pain. I think this is where I got a little ahead of myself. You know, it's interesting, James 1, 2 through 8 talks about suffering, one of the more classic passages. And right in the middle of it, God says, well, by the way, when you're suffering, if you lack wisdom, just ask me. I'll give it to you. I'll give it generously. I'll give it liberally. Happy to give it to you. Why does he say that? Because in our suffering is when oftentimes God reveals to us what we don't know we don't know. And it's in the suffering that he breaks down the barriers and he wipes away all the props. And we realize how badly we're doing and what bad, bad thoughts we have about him. Oftentimes we have very bad thoughts about God early on in the suffering. And God says, when that all starts to come apart for you, ask me for wisdom. Because then you can hear it. And wisdom from God comes in many ways. It comes first and foremost from his word. It comes from his Holy Spirit working straight into our minds. It comes from circumstances. It comes from people. It comes from books. It comes from sermons, podcasts. It comes, he, he can speak however he wants to speak, and he does. And so when we ask God for wisdom, he says, just believe that I'll do it. And I'll do it in a way that you can understand it and in the right way in the right time. I think another thing is name the lies you've believed about God the Father. Make a choice to reject them and believe what's true. Ephesians 4, to 24 says, put off the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the flesh and put on the new self, which is made in the likeness of God. The old flesh believes lies about God. The new self. The new identity in Christ believes the truth about God. So when we see a lie, we know that's the old Ron. That's the old whoever you, what your name is. I don't believe that about God. I know that's a lie. I reject that in the name of Christ. And in place of that, I put this truth and put some Bible verses with it and memorize them. This is true about God. That's renewing. That's making a conscious choice to put off and put on. That's renewing of the mind. Another thing is place yourself under teaching that's marked by grace and truth. I wonder where that would be. How about right here, okay? Grace and truth, they always go together. They're never separated. 
And that's what we endeavor to do here every Sunday, every time people meet, whether it's to hear Carlin preach or hear one of us teach or be in a community group or a small group or one-on-one. That's our goal always, the grace and truth of God the Father coming to you, okay? So place yourself in an environment for growth. Read slash listen. If you don't like to read, then listen. Listen to audiobooks, listen to podcasts. Read and listen to what is the truth about God on your own. I am always reading at least one book that reminds me and helps me understand more deeply the truth about God's great love and grace for me. Not you, me. It's for me, okay? A um, couple of resources real quick. Uh, you've heard these before. Victor of the Darkness, Neil Anderson. He does the best work of all on renewing the mind, Search for Significance, an amazing book by Robert McGee. I use those books more than any other books in, in mentoring and discipleship and counseling. Uh, John Ortberg, if you haven't heard from him, from him, anything he writes, anything he writes, pick it up, read it. If you give him half a chance, he will invite you into his world, and it is a good world. He's a man who is incredibly transparent, incredibly challenging, incredibly filled with grace, and he sees God as he is, and he helps us see him as he is. He'll make you laugh, too, okay? The last thing is let God love you through his people. You can't get there alone. I can't get there alone. Where do you, th- where do you think I'd be today if Jim Craddock hadn't spoken those life-giving words to me? Where would I be? So you, we have to take chances. We have to open up. We have to engage. We have to build friendships. We have to ask for help. This is a place, this is a, you can get hurt anywhere. You can get hurt at Covenant Community Church. But if you spend your life not taking risks because you're afraid of being hurt, well, good luck with that. Because what you've got is what you'll get, right? So you have to make moves. If, you, if you're looking for someone, if you're a counselor, a disciple, or a mentor, a small group, talk to me, talk to Carl, talk to Zach, talk, talk to Steve, talk to one of the elders, one of the deacons. We can hook you up, okay, to what you need. That's what we're here for. Okay, so these are the things that we do in order to renew our minds, all right? Now listen, we are on this journey together. Okay, when we come to faith in Christ, we don't know who God is. We're just starting. And we all have false beliefs about God. And they vary widely. If I sat down with each one of you, I'd hear a little bit different story. Some of us struggle more than others. But any Christian who tells you he has never struggled with how he sees God, he's basically claiming instant maturity. He's lying to you. But first, he lied to himself. Okay, so don't lie to yourselves And let's not lie to each other. Let's be as transparent as we can be, as appropriately transparent as we can be, and invite the people in that can help us, whether that's in a group or individually. And let's journey together, knowing God, so that we can become all that God intended for us to become, which is having Christ formed in us. And then we can do all the things that he intended for us to do. First, right here at Covenant for each other, building a healthy church so that we can reach out into our community with the love and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here. So let's do it together. Let me pray, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are who you say you are. You are the God who is. Thank you that you are God the Father. God our Father. God my Father. Lord, help us to see you as you are and worship you as you are, experience him as you are. Lord, renew our minds, break through. Show us the things that we don't know we don't know. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.